certainly my prayer is that you would take this shaky vessel and you'd use it for your glory. Thank you for the reminder we just had of the fact that you are faithful. Lord, we need that reminder so many, so many times. You are faithful. You are faithful in the face of our unfaithfulness. You are faithful because you are good, not because we are good. You are faithful from your grace. And so we pray, Father, that you would meet with us this morning. You would show us that grace by changing us and making us more like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I want to tell you a story. It's a true story. It was told to me by the person who lived it. I want you to picture a 23-year-old girl, blonde hair, blue-eyed, standing in a courtroom before a judge. He's asked her a question. She has now responded with a simple answer, guilty. And she begins to cry. Now, she doesn't begin to cry because she's going to go to jail. In fact, because she has pled guilty, she's going to go home to her parents that night. She's crying because the record will now forever show that she pled guilty when she wasn't. In fact, she was the victim. You see, a few months earlier, her and her friends decided to go out to eat. They went to a place very similar to an Applebee's. And there was a man there who was leaning against the bar, talking to the people around him. And when she and her friends walked past him, he turned and took his hand and grabbed her rear end. Now, she didn't say anything because she was embarrassed. Over the course of the next hour, she had to walk past this man several times. And each time, he either grabbed or hit her rear end. All of this was caught on tape. The thing is, the last time he did it, she turned around and she slugged him in the face. And just like one of those old movies, he fell backwards into a group of people and a brawl broke out. The police were called. And the only thing any of the witnesses could remember was her hitting him. So she was arrested, booked. She was poor, a college student, so she was given a court-appointed attorney. He was able to actually get his hands on the security footage, and it showed what he had done to her multiple times before she had hit him. The city prosecutor saw it, agreed, and she was simply defending herself. And so he dropped the charges of assault, but told her he was still going to charge her with disorderly conduct. Her lawyer said to her, the only way now to clear your name would be to have a trial. He told her she couldn't afford it and told her that if she attempted it, no judge would be happy to take it. In fact, she probably would be treated quite hostily because they would feel like she was wasting their time. So she took her attorney's advice. She took the disorderly charge, pled guilty, paid the $2,000 fine. But now, every time a police officer looked at her records, they would see that she pled guilty to disorderly conduct. Every time she would fill out an application, there was a background check, they would find that she pled guilty to disorderly conduct. I tell you this story 
because the justice system in the United States is perhaps the best in the world. Every year, the United Nations releases a list of the safest cities in the world, and more than half of them are found in our country. And that has to do with a wonderful justice system. Yet, even with all that, we have to recognize that what happened to that young lady was unjust. It doesn't matter what she was wearing that night. It doesn't matter what kind of restaurant it was. It would not have mattered if she had winked at him. What happened to her was unjust. The topic of injustice or the perversion of justice is something that shows up a number of times in Scripture. Either it shows up as an instruction, as in, here is what justice looks like, or it shows up in the expression of, justice has been perverted. A warning, if you will. Now, we come to 1 Corinthians 6, and it really is kind of a base camp to talk about this particular issue. Chapter 6 really marks the end of the opening of 1 Corinthians. The book, after this moment, after chapter 6, it's mostly him answering questions that they have asked him. But the book opens with him, remind, or him talking about the fact that this was a divided church, and they were divided over the silliest things. And he presents it as evidence, as they like to go around thinking they were spiritual, the fact that you're divided over these things, he says, means you are carnal. And he goes further into the evidence in chapter 5, and he says, I've heard about open sexual immorality being, top, uh, being tolerated in your church. He says, and I believe it. And it's another evidence he presents saying, you think you're spiritual, but in fact... You're carnal. And then he comes to chapter 6, and he comes to this issue. Apparently, the Christians in this church were taking each other to small claims courts. Every time they had a falling out, every time there was a disagreement, they were taking each other to court. And once again, Paul is expressing, here is evidence further that you are not a spiritual people. The topic of justice and injustice is, of course, a topic that is at the heart of a number of the troubles of today. It is something that is being talked about constantly on the news. It's, it's the excuse that so many protesters are giving as to why they're doing what they're doing. So my goal this morning is, again, very simple. I want to show you what the Bible says about this issue. So three points for you this morning. Number one. Number one, the unrighteous pervert justice because they are carnal. The unrighteous pervert justice because they are carnal. I want you to look at verses 12 and 13. They begin this summary conclusion about these two issues, the issue in chapter 5 and the issue here in chapter 6. Now, most of the time churches come to this passage, or any time I grew up, I heard anybody preach on this passage, it was almost exclusively applied to the issue in chapter 5, the issue of sexual immorality. But in fact, the principles that Paul is going to lay down here actually apply to both of chapters 5 and 6. Think of it this way. The Bible is saying that just like a man can lust after a woman, and the result be that he participates in sexual immorality, so can a man be so driven 
to abuse the justice system because he has the impulse for revenge. Two phrases I want you to note here. The first is this. He says, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. Do you see the Corinthians were using a particular excuse to do what they were doing? And their excuse went like this. We have put our faith in Christ, and because of our faith in Christ, we will never stand guilty before God. Therefore, it is lawful for me to give in to my impulses. So think of it this way. Somebody borrows your tools, and they decide, you know what, they're not going to give it back. Maybe they're even going to start claiming they were their tools to begin with, and now you're angry. The Corinthians would say, well, I'm angry this happened. So the impulse is to take them to court. And so I'm allowed to do that. Or think of somebody backing out of the driveway after church today and they scratch the side of your car and they refuse to pay for it. Now you're angry. The Corinthians say, well, we were angry and, and because all things are lawful, I followed that impulse right into court. In essence, they had divorced their confession of faith from their living morality. And Paul's responding by saying, it's true. It's true that if you put your faith in Christ, you'll never stand guilty before God. That doesn't mean you're free to just give in to every impulse that you have. Then look in verse 13. He says, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. Again, this was just him attacking these justifications they were using for their activities. As politely as I can put it, the excuse was this. God made certain private parts of the body to do certain private activities. Therefore, as long as we were using these private parts for these private activities, everything was good. And Paul responds by saying, wait a minute. What you do with your body matters. It matters to the Lord. You should be guided by the principle, what would please God or how can I please God with my body? And that includes how you would handle being uh, being a, a victim or being defrauded by somebody who claims to be a Christian. So if you go back then and include verses 9 through 10, it's obvious what the Bible, the case the Bible's making. It's the unrighteous. What the Corinthians were doing was acting like unrighteous people. People who were outside of Christ. People who were ruled by their carnal or fleshly impulses. People who were slaves to their lust. And this was why they were acting out in this sexually immoral way. And it was why they were acting out in these immoral, unjust ways. Now, if you go back through your Bible, we know that this has always been the case. We go through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we receive a number of warnings, if you will, that the world outside of the people of God will always try and pervert justice. For example, we have in Leviticus a rule against using foreigners as a scapegoat for why crime is happening. Israel is told doing such a thing is unjust. If you want a modern example of where that is happening, you can think of China. Throwing Muslims in concentration camps and Christians into jails. 
If you read their press reports, all of it is laid at the feet of them being a what? A foreigner. These are foreign ideas. China is to be pure. We go to another place in Deuteronomy and we we hear about justice as it's being perverted for the sake of the poor. Meaning the poor were never to be convicted over the rich. Your Honor, my client stole his computer because he had two. And he didn't have any. If you want to think of a modern sense, this is closest to what is being demanded by these protests. It's the idea of favoring the poor over the rich. And Israel's told right out, that is unjust. And of course, there is also the problem of the rich being uh, uh, driven over the poor. A system where the rich can use favors and bribes. So either they're never convicted or if they are, they never really face punishment. And Israel's told that is unjust. In fact, later God sends Amos to cry out. Because the haves were using the court system to run right over the have-nots. The poor couldn't get their day in court because they couldn't pay for it. This happens today in communities where there is significant difference in income levels between residents. On top of all of that, you go to several major and minor prophets, and we see that injustice is actually a reason given why the poor were poor. A direct connection between poverty and the corrupt justice system. And if you want to know where that plays out, you look at the former colonies on the the continent of Africa. I bring you all of that just to bring you to this particular point. We as Christians must understand that if somewhere were to come to us with a claim that injustice has happened, we must respond by saying that is absolutely viable from the Christian worldview. That is something not only that we say is viable, it is something that we have seen and we see in our text happens. And it is quite a reasonable thing to look into a community that might be riddled with poverty and ask the question, has the justice system broke? But we can also say to those who are demanding it today, the justice being perverted to benefit any particular or select group of people is also unrighteous. So whether it's injustice towards a foreigner or injustice towards the rich or injustice toward the poor, the the principle here is this. The unrighteous will pervert justice. And we see the reason for it is because of the human sinful impulse to do so. The unrighteous are slaves to their impulse. And so we look at our culture, we look at our society and we go, it's no surprise as we watch our culture and our society push people to give in to every single impulse they have and we see in a society like that we should expect to find injustice number two god's people should have the wisdom to administer justice god's people should have the wisdom to administer justice go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter He starts with a series of questions, the first one being this, are any of you so bold, or in the King James, dare any of you? Are you taking your problems to the world over the saints? 
the idea of boldness here is the idea of that they should be embarrassed. Not only should they be embarrassed because they were tolerating this open sexual immorality, they should be embarrassed that these lawsuits were happening at all. And not just should they be embarrassed, the Bible is now going to continue to explain why they should be ashamed. Notice the way the text unfolds, starting in verse 2. There were reminded that the saints of God will judge the world on the last day. You and I, if you're a believer in Christ, will participate in the resurrection and judgment of the unrighteous. So you see the question in the passage. Shouldn't people who are going to do that have the ability to make judgments about small matters? Or note in the text how we are reminded that we as the saints of God will participate in the judgment of angels. Likely a reference to the fact that we will sit in judgment over Satan and his demons who are supernatural. And you see the question then. Shouldn't the same people be able to handle matters, natural matters? Maybe like money. But instead, they were going to the unrighteous. And verse 5 says, this is shameful. Look at the last two questions. What you're admitting to the world is this. There is nobody wise among you. Why is that a, a problem? Don't we go out to the world and proclaim that Christ gives new life? That we're part of a different kingdom? And then to go to the unrighteous and say, well, there's nobody wise enough to figure this out. Aren't you saying that the new kingdom, the new life, doesn't have any answers either? It's shameful. And of course, if there's nobody wise enough to figure these things out, then of course the brother is going against brother and that before unbelievers. This is a serious issue because he's going to later make a comparison to visiting a harlot in verse 15, to committing adultery in verse 18, compared to idol worship in verse 19. Shameful things. And the clear implication is what? God's people should have the wisdom to know how to administer justice. You might remember there's an Old Testament story about this. Moses, for a while, was the only acting judge among the people of God, and it was wearing him out. So his father-in-law comes along. Some father-in-laws happen to be smart. He's listening somewhere in the parking lot. His father-in-law comes along, and he says, you know, you really should get other guys involved. And he makes the same argument to Moses. He says, shouldn't there be more than one man wise enough to deal with these matters? Shouldn't there be more than one man among the people of God who have the wisdom and maturity to make judgments? Of course, the applications here are many. The first is the one in the text. There should be no lawsuits among Christians. This is the idea of small claims. We're not talking about criminal activity. We're talking about small claims, things that people argue over. Of all people, the Bible is clearly saying we are the kind of people who should be able to settle our differences without the world needing to give their input. The inability to do so is a good sign your church is not healthy. 
it's a good chance it's a good chance or a good sign that your church is carnal but there's a second application the one we can make for our time in the book of micah god's people are told that we are to hate injustice and are to love justice micah 6 means that christians should openly hate any any fact where a woman who has faced abuse has struggled to get her day in court. Those kind of stories should make us angry. But it also means that we reject any kind of idea that would condemn a man by simple hearsay. Hate injustice. Love justice. We do not give in to our impulses. But take something like Black Lives Matter. Micah 6 means that Christians should openly hate. It should make us angry. Anytime an African American in our culture is the victim of unchecked authority. But it also means we reject the asinine idea of defund the police. We hate injustice. We love justice. And note how taking positions like that will often leave us outside of the political mainstream. No camp but the Lord's camp. If we need a website or a news organization or anything to tell us what we should think about this issue, it should be to our shame. Is there any wise among us? Anybody here who can make a judgment? We are not like the world. We are washed, sanctified, justified by, the, by faith in Christ. Our commitment is to the glory of God. We do not join ourselves to the wisdom of the world. We don't act as if we have no master, because that would be a lie. We were bought with a price. And our master has given us the wisdom for justice. Number three. Justice is always perfect when handed out by God. Justice is always perfect when handed out by God. I want you to look with me at verses 7 and 8. Note the questions. Why not be wronged? Or why not rather suffer being defrauded? These two questions are really the turning point of the passage. The Bible is recognizing, yes, wrongs have happened. This isn't just people making stuff up. There's real fraud happening. So take a moment and think about that. How would you feel if you were the victim of a wrong? Especially by somebody who calls himself your brother or sister in Christ. What emotion would you feel? Anger. And depending on what happened, perhaps shame. And both are godly emotions. God gave you the emotion of anger to use to respond to injustice. Now, anybody with a teenager knows we can use that wrongly. But that's what the emotion is for. Anger is the emotion God gave you to respond to injustice. Shame is an emotion God gave you so that you can recognize something wrong has happened. 
So the question we have here really is, how should the Christian respond when they are angry over an injustice, when they feel this shame? Well, we're given some options. Well, the first is the one we've mentioned. We could be just like the world, and we can pervert justice so that we can get what we want. We can twist things and turn things and change things so that we can get the thing or the outcome we want. This is the natural course for the unrighteous. It is most commonly found in the world, and the Bible is saying, nope, that's not how Christians should do this. We have a second option. The previous point. We should be the kind of people who should be able to handle these problems with the wisdom of God. The kind of people who can come to fair and just resolutions. And that should be regular among us. But here the Bible is setting before us a third option. Be wrong. Another way to say it is the Bible is telling you and I that all matters of injustice, not, I should say, not all matters of injustice have to be resolved in this life, especially as it pertains to another believer. And so the question is, why is that a legitimate response? Why is it a legitimate response to just be wrong? Well, the answer is actually in the future. Look at verse 9. Why suddenly bring up the inheritance of the kingdom of God? Or go back to verses 2 through 4. Why mention the judgments at the end of the age? Or go back to verse 11. Why bring up our justification, a legal term? And the answer is simple. Because at certain cases, at certain times, it's better to take the hit because we have the confidence to know the justice of God. There will be perfect justice at the end of the age. Christ's death on the cross was perfect justice for our sin. Because of that justice, we have an inheritance in the kingdom. Or maybe they should put it this way. You and I can absorb losing a dollar because we have millions coming to us. Not only that, we have the guarantee that God will actually make sure we get our dollar back at the end of the age. And we will have those things, not because of anything that makes us worthy of them, but because Christ did it, he paid for our sins, and we have been fully pardoned. You see, the fact that God will hand out justice, perfect justice, has, a, has an application for us. It means when it comes to disputes and troubles and problems that we have with one another, and it happens, one of the options you need to consider is whether you can just take the wrong. No bringing it to the pastor or the deacon board or the head of ministry or writing a letter or making a phone call. You just take the hit and keep going. It's not your only option. We have another one here to use wisdom to come and resolve the matter. But it is an option. And is one that speaks to confidence in the justice of God. A second application is the fact that this reality brings hope. It brings hope when justice seems to be out of grasp. Perhaps you this morning are a victim of an abuser. Maybe something happened to you that nobody knows about. Maybe the person or the people involved are dead. And perhaps the person or people involved, there's no hope they'll ever really ask for forgiveness. No hope you'll ever actually get your day in court. 
we can face such things knowing that God's justice will not be perverted, but will be fair and right, and not even death will allow the guilty to avoid that justice. And the third option is that we can appeal to the God of justice. There are many prayers in the Psalms where the writer pleads with God to burn down someone's home or make their crops dry up. You see, to go to God and ask and plead and beg for justice is actually an act of faith. We can openly say, Lord, we pray for your justice. Rain it down. But lastly, it means that the fact that an injustice has happened does not mean we have the permission to promote injustice. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we fear the Lord who does and will bring perfect justice. The reality of injustice in this world goes hand in hand with the reality of sin. Injustice has been a part of every kingdom, empire, culture, and nation. It's been worse in some places, but it's a reality wherever humans live. The world around us falls into injustice because it is a slave to its most basic impulses. What the flesh wants, the flesh gets, and it's willing to pervert justice to get it. The Christian, though, because they have God's wisdom, should hate injustice and love justice. We do not need the world to tell us which side to take, even when that leaves us political orphans. And lastly, while the reality of injustice is found all over the world, we know because of Christ's death we serve a God of justice. On the last day, his justice will be perfect. All wrongs will be righted. And there will be no hiding from it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity and wisdom of your word. I pray we would be people who are found to be wise. I pray, Lord, to be your wisdom that would guide us through the thoughts of justice and injustice, whether they be national matters or local matters or, of course, Father, matters between us as believers here in this church. We would be ruled by your wisdom. And we thank you, Lord, that we can walk away with the confidence no matter what has happened, there will be a day of justice. And it will be fair, and it will be perfect, and it will be glorious, and we will praise you for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.